Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis. This week, we're diving deep into fertility apps with academic Catherine Kemp. But first, our regular wrap of the latest news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea. G'day, Lizzie. How are you? I'm good. I hope you're well as well. I'm very well. Um, we are mourning the late out with a um, heart strain of our friend Dan Stinton from Guardian Australia, but we're going to battle on regardless with our special guest, Catherine Kemp, who is with Uni of New South Wales's Faculty of Law and Justice and has been doing some really interesting privacy-related work around fertility apps. G'day, Catherine, and thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you. And the format is we'll spend the first part of this talking about some of the big issues that have been making news in tech, and then we're going to dive deep into some of Catherine's research in the second part of the pod. So I was going to give this one to Dan to kick off, but it's one that a lot of you might have been seeing in the media this week, and it kind of goes off in a bunch of different directions. But I guess the general theme is the, you wouldn't even call it a creep, the race of AI into areas that we may not have been expecting to see it. And there's a few stories that have hit the news, which I will sequence out very briefly and then maybe we'll kick them around a bit. But they all pertain in different ways to copyright. The first one is a story about an AI-generated song that's been developed based on the recorded music of, I guess you call them a rapper, Drake, and The Weeknd, that's without an E, Weeknd. And they've been pulled, this AI-generated vocals that purported to be these two artists but wasn't, had been resequenced by machine learning and then put up on some streaming services and it made its way around a number of the platforms as well, including TikTok. Its user was called Ghostwriter977, which is probably the only truthful thing about what was going on with that bit of tech. Technology. So we've got the music and, of course, the artists there are saying that's an infringement of copyright. You've got to pull it down because no one gave you permission to get in to our music and reformat like that. There is also an AI-generated interview with the racing driver, Michael Schumacher, who was subject to a, a terrible skiing accident a few years ago. And it was sort of put forward as an interview, but then the interview had been done by what appears to be a fairly rudimentary AI. And then there was the photo comp that an IA-generated photo one. So there's, there's all these different applications now bleeding into, I guess, our popular culture, Lizzie. And I, I, there's a few ways of going at this, but I, I want to start with the basics and particularly in the context of discussions we've been having about the appropriateness or not of copyright law in this environment. But with, with the Drake weekend piece, is it fair enough for them to say, we don't give you permission to get into, you know, our music and turn it around the way you want it to? Yeah, I think this is an interesting question because often when we think about AI tools, you can think they've just emerged from nowhere, like they've popped into being. But the reality is there's different material components that go into their creation. You know, one is the algorithm that's written or the various algorithms that go together. So the, the writing, the creation of the tool for analysing the data. But the other one is the data, right? The, what you train it on. And with ChatGPT, people talk about large language models using essentially what every kind of bit of text on the internet to then create new text by learning about, well, so to speak, or putting the dots together about what the answer to a question might be based on the text that already exists on the internet. And there's a real question there if you've put something in the internet, whether you consent, I mean, I'm not even sure that the 
idea of consent really works in this context to that being used to train a large language model. And the same is true for music. So, you know, the people who own the rights to the Drake songs were saying, oh, well, we don't consent to you using this to train your models. And I do think in straight legal terms, there's a, a meritorious argument there, which is that, you know, I've created this work. I don't think you should be able to use it. You're not licensed to use it for training an algorithm to create new material out of it. Even if that new work, however derivative it may be, may be a new work in fact, in reality, you know, to some degree, like all kind of creative work is derivative of other creative works or influenced by it. But this is the next level, which is it's, it's beyond sampling. It's really training a system to create something. And that original training set has not been licensed for that purpose. So I think legally, obviously, it's a bit grey or there's not, it's not really uh, accommodated for in current copyright law or that there's not been an example of this being fought out in the courts. But you can understand how the current approach might jeopardise the capacity of people to do this, you know, for better or worse. I mean, I don't know if you've listened to the two songs, but it is pretty obvious one of them is fake, I have to say. Like, it's a, there's a lot of auto-tune. You can tell it's low quality. I think the real question comes when, you know, it starts being better and, you know, it's a so why is it different it. to sampling? Like my 16-year-old is really into mixing up lots of different bits of music and repurposing and there's a whole lot of that sort of that, it, that passes as music. Does that get captured by copyright or should it? Yes. And then, yeah. Sampling so does, yeah. sampling does. And then the difference here is that no one's actually put things together and it's just well, a mechanical process really pulling out. Yeah, when you create a work that's subject to copyright, you can license it out for different purposes, including for it to be played on the radio, whatever it may be, you know, but it's not clear that you are required to license it out for training an AI model, for example, but what's clear is that nobody has done it, right? So the question is, do you have to then have a license to do that? And, And recording companies who often own the rights are the ones jumping up and down about this. We're not happy with you using this material to train your AI. The other point about all this is, you know, we talked on previous episodes with Rory Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin about the fact that recording artists often also don't necessarily offer real returns to artists in ways that you might expect. So they've got their own kind of vested interest in trying to stop various AI tools using their material to train their systems. But, you know, the big loser, of course, may well be the artists themselves, especially uh, smaller artists. Drake is doing pretty well, but others who might be producing new content and not really able to compete Mm. with either automatically generated content or obviously they advocate for their interests against large recording companies. So, yeah, it's another one into the mix. How do you look at it, Catherine? Well, I'm not going to pretend to be a, a copyright lawyer, but neither I am have... I. <laughs> neither am um, I. <laughs> I have seen this debate playing out over the last year or so among academics and others arguing that the the current copyright laws might be stifling innovation and need to be more flexible when it comes to allowing certain, you know, training or by AI on these works that might be subject to copyright. And it's concerning to me that we hear the usual cries of, you know, stifling innovation and need for flexibility without the discussion about the new responsibilities that we should be acknowledging, both philosophically and as part of our regulation, and going beyond motivations of FOMO and calls for us to clear a path through existing law before we have a proper discussion 
about what are the new responsibilities and allocation of risk for emerging capabilities, who's controlling this, and not just looking to this question of, of is innovation being stifled? Because as we know, innovation isn't by definition a good thing. There's plenty of bad innovation yeah. and regulation is meant to stifle bad innovation. You could have almost been reading word for word off Google's submission into the copyright review, which is reported today in Innovation Oz. <laughs> Australians' copyright laws are stifling innovation by not affording <laughs> tech companies exceptions to mine websites for information when developing AI tools. This is a position that Google's put forward, endorsed by the Comms Alliance, which includes, who would have guessed, Facebook, Apple, Twitter, and Google. So yes, it's right, isn't it, Lizzie, that it is just taking the model of data mining, data acquisition, data as well, any data is going to be good, give us more of it to the next level. Yeah, well, I think there are parallels with privacy here, because obviously, platforms currently use data that we give to them in a transactional way, they take that and then use that to do all sorts of things, including developing sophisticated markets for advertising. And the way we use the platforms, we I don't think many people realise or want to necessarily consent to that use of their information. And I think the same is true here. People put stuff online that they've made and they may have a formal process for protecting the copyright or the rights they have over it and then it's being used for something else entirely. And I don't think just because you publish something on the internet, whether it's a blog or a song or whatever, that that means you lose all rights for it to be in or out of a training set. Well, you're more a lot, either you or Catherine, I've never quite got what the term moral rights means, but does that play into this as well, that an artist produces some content and they're not consenting to AI then to trawl over it and repurpose it, are they? Yeah, well, moral rights is, my understanding at least, is that there's always some rights that are retained by the creator, even if you've licensed wholesale use of the work to others, that there's the creator's done something that gives them moral rights over it. And that might mean, like, I think that stuff to get more complex if your data's being used to train a, an algorithm that you don't, you know, you've got some objection to, like politically or whatever, as well as commercially. And that, I think, is where it starts to get a bit nasty. Like, what happens if we're using some kind of, things that we've created are being used to train, like you're making a video game or whatever and it's being used to train the military, is that okay? Like, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which content that's been created by artists and members of the community, not even just artists, writings, all those kinds of things, text as well, can be used in ways that we didn't intend if it's on the internet. And really I think what it shows is that these platforms sort of see this as like the commons. They're just taking it and using it for their own, privatising what is a um, publicly available resource to then profit from it and they don't really care if people don't like it and they're trying to claim the space before anyone can really meaningfully object and then set that as the standard practice. I mean, that's what that's their business model, right? That's what they do. They find new new areas, claim that this is completely unprecedented and then it becomes a new way of operating. And mm. I'm not sure that makes it valid, of course. Anything else, Catherine? No, I think Lizzie's covered the field there and I, I, I think we, we have a similar point of view that you, you can't just be clearing that path through the law and, and, and claiming it, it for yourself. We have to bear in mind that we've had plenty of bad innovations, you know, from leaded petrol and thalidomide to cocaine tonic over the years and that the newness of something doesn't make it right. Self-evident good, yeah, that's right. We better move on. Lizzie, you pulled out a story about Services Australia maybe using metadata in a new and imaginative way. 
Yeah, so this is a story that was reported by IT News, but then it's been taken up by some other mainstream um, media organisations as well. And it is really galling. So I thought it was worth sharing with this group. They may also be appalled as I am. Services Australia obviously is responsible for handing out various forms of welfare money um, and making payments. And one of the things that they like to do is engage in compliance investigations to work out if someone might not be telling the truth to Centrelink. And this story focuses on whether somebody's in a domestic relationship, so whether they're claiming, for example, a single parent allowance and the like. And what it's emerged is that the metadata retention regime, which was nominally introduced to deal with the most serious of offences, there's been a request by Services Australia to gain access to metadata of people who might be their clients, their cohort, to gain access to that metadata to assist in compliance investigations, essentially to use metadata to work out if someone's in a relationship. And they've been requesting that the Attorney General list them as one of the agencies. And people may recall there's a bit of a scandal around this because lots of agencies have been asked to be listed for all these purposes like the RSPCA and, you know, various local councils and stuff, which really runs counter to the original intention of that legislation, which was to really use that metadata for only the most serious of offences. And Services Australia was rejected. So instead what they were told to do was partner with the AFP, Australian Federal Police, to engage in kind of raids essentially to access this metadata if there was a criminal investigation. Not all compliance investigations leads to criminal investigations, but often it seems to what, what happens is Services Australia will suggest that there's a criminal investigation or the AFP will agree with them. They'll engage in a raid and then the criminal investigation might not proceed, but they still have access to that metadata. And it's really invasive. There's a woman who reports the experience of being raided by Services Australia. They're going through her phone. They are having... With, with the AFP have used password cracking technology to access all the data in the phone to work out if, if she's in a relationship. And I mean, apart from the immense complexity of working out whether someone's in a relationship, which I just sort of think is not, should never be really the business of Services Australia, to be honest, there was a lot of talk about how metadata was just this kind of very surface level data, nothing that could be too intimate or personal. And it's just a clear invasion of people's privacy. And I just, I think Services Australia is a bit out of control. Like, Do we know if this is something that's happened under the new government or if it's an FOI from previously? Because I know there's been a lot of discussion about the culture within that agency by the new minister. Yeah, well, so this story came out of an FOI that the Guide IT News did to figure out how many times they'd been requesting the AG give them the power to access metadata without a warrant. So we know that it's happened in the past. I don't think they've had, had any reason to change under the current government, but it may be that they've they've shaped up since the robo-debt investigation. But I don't know. No one services Australia. I'd be surprised if that's true. And you know, the current government is committed to closing some of these loopholes in the metadata retention regime to kind of um, fixing gaps that have been identified by the ombudsman. There's just a huge amount of bad behaviour in relation to this regime. I have to say this is not the least of it. And they've committed to reforming it to fix it. But I just don't think this has to happen now because this strikes me as one of those situations where they're kind of out of control because they see the possibility and then they orient towards gaining access to it for their own purposes rather than sticking with what they're supposed to be doing, which is providing a welfare state. But, you know, I think we've had, I, I think this is a, a well-run conversation, but a point that's also worth making that if this was technology was being used to help people access services and identify where they are not getting the support they need rather than being used as a police mechanism, we'd be probably having a very different discussion about the way governments use technology. It's almost like technology is being used as an automatic police force rather than an automatic community engagement officer. 
Completely. And in their various submissions and requests to get further powers to do this kind of stuff more often, they say, oh, well, there's $20 million potentially of fraud committed against the system. And I think to myself, in the scheme of things, that seems so small. Like, we're, you know, we're going to go through stage three tax cuts, which is what, 200 50 billion or something they need to stay in their lane i don't know in what universe can you imagine services australian employees coming and dawn raiding your house it just feels like it's like you know when they Mm. gave border force uniforms it's like the militarization of the public service in a way i think that shouldn't be allowed you ever had a dawn raid catherine (laughs) not so much peter it sounds like there's real questions of proportionality there and that urge for purpose creep that inevitably exists when you have a pool of data available and then everybody starts thinking about what could we use that for? What could we find out from that? And as Lizzie points out, you know, initially the whole discussion around metadata was that it was simply data about data and wasn't going to reveal anything too personal. And we see here that it's being used in situations where there seems to be that lack of proportionality between the need and the invasion of privacy that goes with it. It's almost on that road, Jennifer's just put the note in the chat shades of 1984, but almost social credit system, isn't it? Once, once, um, or it's showing how that system could work. Yeah, I mean, I hate to think what they'd find if they went through my metadata and work out if I'm in a personal relationship. What would they find in your phone? It'd be as messy as everything else in my personal and professional (laughs) life, I'm sure, Lizzie. Um, I'd hate to look at my phone. Um, (laughs) Anyway, moving on. Our friends at Choice put out a terrific report this week on the way rental platforms are using our data and a, a couple of really interesting. So they, they reviewed a number of the rental platforms, looked at their terms and, and conditions and the amount of information they are collecting. And I guess the two points that come out of this is firstly, that there is compulsion now. If you're applying to rent a property, there is no option other than to use these apps. And the degree, one of the apps, which was called Alio, and I haven't rented for a long time, so these are new to me, but they're asking you to log your birth date, your occupation, your bank account, your credit card details, your identification documents, including your driver's license, your passport, as well as any other data uploaded. Now, that's a honeypot. I also wonder what it's being used for. So it's I, I get I guess it's just reinforcing the need for privacy reform. But let's just stick specifically to this. What is the business model we think these apps are developing based around this? And what should we be concerned about? I'm not entirely sure what the business model is, apart from a bit of laziness. And also because they're not under any duty or requirement to delete, they can just keep keeping this kind of information. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure there's a mentality in corporate Australia whereby they assume data is just an asset that might be able to be monetized in some format. So while they have the opportunity, they collect it. But yeah, it's pretty appalling because you don't have, have a choice and uh, obviously you don't have a right to have it deleted. And both those things, I, I just have no sense that they would be planning to keep any of this secure in any meaningful way or investing in keeping it secure and It feels like to me it is definitely um, a candidate for a data breach in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, Catherine? I think you've you've got to look at it at both ends of the spectrum, both with what's happening with the little guys and what's happening with the big guys. When it comes to the little guys, these might be the estate agencies who come across a platform like this and think how convenient 
uh, we don't have to deal with this, you know, exchange of information anymore because these guys do it all for us. And so we're going to force all of the tenant um, applications to go through that platform. And of course, they're not doing any due diligence on how the platform treats the information, how they retain it, this kind of security that's available. It just makes their life easier. And to the extent that they get any of that data, in a lot of cases, they might not even be covered by our Privacy Act because they'll fall within the small business exemption. And so they, they won't be responsible themselves. Then it would, the, the, would the platform have the exemption as well? Because no, probably, I, I was going to say probably mm-hmm. not. Um, in a lot of cases, they would come in to an, an exception to the small business exemption if they're dealing in that data, if they're exchanging it for a benefit and so forth, which I think would happen with a number of those platforms. And that's the other end of the spectrum that I was going to mention here that I think is really interesting because choice mentions. Uh, one of the big players in this rent tech platform market is Ignite, which is owned by the REA Group. That is, you know, REA Group owns realestate.com.au and REA Group is in turn majority owned by News Corp. Now, if you start having a look at the News Corp privacy policies and the REA Group privacy policies, which is something that I did last year, when I was writing a paper for the National Consumer Congress on how to track consumers who don't want to be tracked. And they're not very explicit about this in their privacy policies, but they do say that they're sharing information with related companies. And on top of that, instead of you going to the consumer-facing notices and policies, if you instead go to the, the policies and the advertisements that are given to the advertising customers of News Corp, then you start to get a bigger picture. So, for example, and I can quote from from what I found last year, they say on their customer data platform, they say, we're bringing together the power of the audiences across KO, Binge, REA and News Corp networks into a single platform under a single set of user IDs. So where we have audience members who are News Corp, we then match this with data from our partner networks to get a better view of what they do. And I think partly here what they're claiming in all of this is is something that that Choice mentioned was that there was a claim that there's some non-personal data. And so News Corp seems to claim that because they take away people's name and give them a unique identity number to connect this all up, that that's now not personal information. Now, I, I think that's a load of nonsense. It is personal information. It's tracking around a particular individual and attaching all this kind of information to their profiles. But I think that's some of what is quite possibly happening behind the scenes uh, with this kind of information. So just so I understand it, because I'm slow, we've got a media company that would probably be claiming exemptions under privacy because they're a media company doing journalism and they're matching. So that's not, so are they matching data from their readers with all this other data? Yeah, so it's more, the claim is not so much a journalism exemption claim, 
better claim that this is not personal information because they say they've worked out these unique identifiers to connect up all of that information. And they do point out that they can do this sort of cross-contextual tracking whether or not the person is logged into any service. Mm -hmm. So it's quite pervasive, but it's part of what the News Corp uh, group is advertising to the advertising customers to say, look how comprehensively we can understand our audience because we track them across all of these different platforms. Mm. This is where media companies become more like their own digital platform, right, Lizzie? Yeah, exactly, because it doesn't really matter what your name and address is. It's how you contribute to population-level insights, really. Um, So essentially, if it's not personal information under the Privacy Act, the Privacy Act doesn't apply. And what they're doing is stripping the personal information out but keeping the data that's relevant for advertising purposes, creating a profile of you that isn't attached to your name and and address, say, but it's still very useful because they can know what advertising might be useful or what you might be primed for in terms of advertising, but also they can learn about connections that you make in your life that they can then inform those curated audiences in other circumstances even if it's not for you particularly so yeah I mean this is this is the business model of Facebook really I mean it's pretty stark I think this does happen in lots of different places like rentals one but also in places like pharmacies and stuff where they take information about what you've bought and share it as a network and use it in a similar way take away your personal information then use it Mm. mix it with other kinds of information to target advertising, to, you know, work with data brokers, to gain insights about your own audience, but also share those insights so that you can get other insights from other companies. I mean, the whole thing is very unseemly. I do sort of wonder if we introduced a fair and reasonable test under the Privacy Act, which is one of the proposals in the current reform regime, whether that would qualify. Because I wonder whether you could in any way understand that as fair and reasonable. If you're required to put in this information in order to apply for a rental, and then it turns out it's being shared with Binge and News Corp under an agreement that these different entities have is that you know would then it be considered fair and reasonable or would would it be fair and reasonable for a um a small guy real estate agent to use a platform like this without providing full information to the individual or without doing any due diligence uh without it without looking at other options that might be less privacy invasive I mean, I think there's lots of reforms that have been proposed in this current process that might affect this business model, but I do wonder whether some of them, you know, like that, that just wouldn't pass the pub test, I wouldn't have thought. And I think the more people, well, if this reform happens, the more kind of horrible webs of, of personal information sharing that goes on, I think, will become apparent and there'll be a real question around whether this fits with what the public expectations of privacy are and what what a court might consider acceptable as well under mm. the fair and reasonable test. Yeah, well, so full kudos for choice for putting out this research. It's really timely because, as we all know, privacy law is a live issue at the moment and we're hoping to see action on that over the next few months. It's also a good segue into our deep dive because if you thought real estate agents were being liberal in their extraction of data, wait till you find out what fertility apps are doing. Catherine, I'm not an expert on fertility apps for obvious reasons, but I'm really interested in why you've taken this area as a as a point of focus for your research and what you've found out. Yeah, it, it was something, Peter, where I, as far as my motivation went, it really struck me two things. Firstly, 
just the intimacy of the kind of information that was being collected by these apps because it includes, you know, when people are having sex, how they're having sex, what kind of contraception they used, if any, all the finer details of... Uh, Sorry, um, how they're having sex? Yeah, I know. So some of this... um, options that you can choose from there you you think how could that be possibly relevant (laughs) to whether you might conceive or not but they're they're quite specific and some of them just use words to describe this others use symbols and I have to say I didn't quite understand all of the symbols for the the various ways (laughs) are they specialist emojis or they just you're off the shelf emojis not off the shelf boxes arrows so forth um But this is all part of it, depending on the app, is is getting down to that level of detail and tracking for people who are wanting to get pregnant or people who are not wanting to get pregnant, people who are trying to track some potentially some kind of reproductive disorder where they're tracking their various symptoms across the month and the, the years to see what's going on and to be able to share that with their their doctors. And then in addition to to that kind of information, a whole lot of extra questions that these apps sometimes ask consumers in the course of what they call a health assessment. So they'll be asking them about their various potential uh, reproductive disorders, but also going into things like do you feel unsafe in your home? Have you struggled to pay your your bills in the last three months? Uh, have you been unable to pay your medical bills and things like this that can't possibly go to the questions that the consumers are trying to answer themselves, but can serve purposes of those apps. And the, the other element on the motivation was that I, I think this is an area where people are highly vulnerable, not just because of the intimacy of that information, but because of why they are using the app in the first place. And all of us would either have had the experience of struggling with some aspect of reproduction or knowing people who, for example, are desperately trying to conceive over a number of years and turning to sort of all manner of potential solutions, including apps like these, to try and have a baby, find out what's going wrong. And they should be able to do that in a way that respects their their dignity and autonomy and doesn't turn this into a commercial opportunity for an entirely different kind of business. For example, you know, one of these apps is owned by a drug development company. Others are owned by media companies. As you can imagine, their purposes are not always aligned with the purposes of the people using the apps. Well, this is big business, right? Because these apps are used by many millions of people, right? They're some of the most popular apps going around. I mean, one thing I sort of I remember when Apple Health came out was, or maybe it was one of the Apple products and everyone noticed how the one thing that they didn't track was among your health events in your life was your menstruation and there was no capacity to input that. And I imagine they've fixed that now. I don't use it. I thought it was kind of mildly hilarious because it, it does sort of suggest who was in the room when they're designing or talking about what constitutes health. And yeah, I do. 
I can understand then how there's this gap in the market of sorts that's been neglected and then is serviced by many, many people wanting to keep track of this stuff. But yeah, we're, we're talking about like millions of people using it, but also like, you know, there's apps that are, that are endorsed by the World Health Organization, especially for people in countries where menstruation is much more of a taboo and, and you know, women might have very good reasons for wanting to keep track of what's going on in their reproductive cycle. So not even just for pregnancy, although pregnancy obviously is this huge commercial opportunity for marketers. Uh, it's one of, you know, one of those key moments in life where your, where your consumption habits change. And so knowing when someone's pregnant is like the holy grail for marketers because, you know, everything's in flux and they can start marketing to you. But can you tell us a bit more about the size of these kinds of mm. um, apps and the usage and what kind of potential exists in terms of the commercial opportunities they're exploiting? Yeah, and and just going off one of the things you mentioned there in terms of who's recommending them, some of these major apps are are recommended by gynecologists and obstetricians to their patients. And obviously, they will be more focused on, you know, what kind of health data does this give us and what insights could we get here, rather than having any expertise in being able to guide people on whether it, it is safe to be sharing that data in the first place. But this is a growing industry, which is sometimes referred to as the the femtech industry globally, which provides various technology products that are aimed at female sort of physiological issues of of all, all kinds. And the, the estimates vary in the billions of dollars globally as to what that will be worth. Uh, some of the major players are, are definitely in many millions of users worldwide. And one of the things to note is that most of these apps, they're not free to use. They're, they're charging a subscription or a one-off significant sum to use the app. And so it's not even a case of somebody thinking that they're receiving a free service and handing over data for other purposes, not that this would be really an appropriate situation for doing that kind of exchange, but it is something that they are paying for and then some of their data is being repurposed in the process. Mm. So one of those apps that asked for that health assessment is based in America and asks this extensive list of questions about the sort of economic and social and health circumstances of a person and also says that it claims it de-identifies that data but then sells it to other companies for all kinds of purposes. So that was going to be my question. You've you've reviewed the privacy policies. What is your thesis on what is the secondary market that this information is serving? Like what what is the value of that data beyond the overt use to give people feedback on, I guess, how their bodies are going? I think that this varies from app developer to app developer. So we have that kind of a situation with that drug development company who's clearly monetizing the data by selling it to others. And when I say clearly, clearly to me after reading the privacy policy, it's certainly not something they headline with. And then in other cases, the information can be used as within advertising networks and for personalization of advertising and content. So there is data that is shared with Google Analytics, with Facebook, with Pinterest and so forth for targeting advertising to those customers. Aside from that, that you see some 
partnerships uh, between the app developers and other companies. For instance, Amazon appears to partner with a number of these apps so that people are being directed through, not always clearly, to Amazon sites. They might sometimes click on a little button that says create your baby registry and they next thing find themselves on the Amazon site and there's sharing of information between the app and Amazon. Now, I'm not saying that the app is sending somebody's sexual activity data to Amazon, but there is profile information that's shared that's useful for knowing what can what this person can be targeted with for various potential purchases. And as Lizzie pointed out, these can be at key moments in the life of a person or a couple when they're particularly open to becoming brand loyal as a result of that turning point in their life. Yeah, because it's not even like they just share raw data, right? It might be that to integrate a functionality like that with Amazon where it's like, set up your baby registry, just sounds very full on. You know, it's that they might be sharing data that that person now qualifies for that particular button or whatever it is. I, I remember reading about one of these apps that, that was using a software development kit that then allowed it to have integrate functionality with things like Facebook. And then the data that was being shared was, uh, was labeled in a particular way that they said they weren't sharing any information with Facebook, but if you hadn't had an entry in the data set and then, for example, the data set was labelled, you know, periods or whatever, and then if that stops, you can infer then from that that somebody may in fact be pregnant, for example. But there's much more complexity to how this data is shared and whether that's that goes beyond also just like intentional sharing. Like I think the apps have a production, even when they're trying to not do this nefariously, say, uh, or with the intention of sharing. They can, in producing these apps and not taking the steps to properly protect the data of those people who are using it, information can be shared and then inferred by the third parties that they integrate functionality with. I don't know if that's your experience analysing the policies, but it's, it's so easy for these things to move through loopholes, I suppose is what I'm trying to say, in current privacy law, at least in Australia, where things like inferred information aren't really included and you know, you, yeah. do, you do realise how out of date we are. I think another aspect here, it comes to the the building up a database and then potentially selling it to another organization as a complete database on all of these customers, which has definitely occurred with some of the apps already being built up by a single app developer and then sold to a large multinational company. And that's one of the really interesting things about the messaging that's presented to consumers is that some of these apps are actually headlining with we never sell your data and putting that right up front on the early screens in big letters. And then when you read the fine print of the privacy policy, it says that in fact, they can sell all of that data, including all of your data about sex and periods and contraception and so forth, if they decide to sell it as part of a business asset or as part of the sale of their whole business. So it adds to the value of their their company as a whole and that particular database, which they treat as a business asset. If they're able to say, we have this many million people using the app who have input this kind of data, and in addition to what they actually entered themselves, there's these aside references to what's called usage data, which sounds quite dull and and nothing in particular. But this is what the what the person is looking at 
on the app, what articles they're reading, for how long they're reading it, what ads they're clicking on, what support groups they join, which includes things like trying to conceive after miscarriage or stillbirth support group or fertility support groups, uh, sexual assault survivors and so forth. That's quite sensitive information, but is treated as usage data and is then shared with other companies on the basis that it is just information about how you use the app, which is a really interesting thing going off what Lizzie was mentioning about inferences, because I I think this is like those situations where you see data brokers selling lists of people who have a diabetes interest or a cholesterol interest that, you know, they just love reading about this stuff (laughs) rather than they have a cholesterol problem or they have diabetes. And likewise here, we've got proxy information that if somebody keeps on reading articles about, you know, what's it like to use Clomid for infertility and joining infertility support groups, are you just saying that they have an interest in infertility and therefore that's not sensitive information that needs to be treated more carefully under the privacy act or are you properly treating this as proxy information that is about their health and in a lot of cases it seems that they're not treating it as sensitive information can we take this as a bit of a case study for the the privacy reforms that are currently out for discussion. And I guess there's three elements I'm interested in how life would be different with these apps. The expansion of the definition of personal information to include inferred information, the review of the way consent operates to shift from ticker box to fair and reasonable. And I guess finally, the creation of some form of enforcement mechanism for misuse of personal information. Let's go into a fantasy world where the broad thrust of these privacy reforms land and they become law how is this conversation about fertility apps different in 12 months time with those sorts of laws in place i think firstly on that question of inferences there are privacy practitioners now who would tell you that's already should be part of personal information in in proper practice but not everybody treats it that way and so we would then if those reforms that have been proposed were passed hopefully we would then have clarity that yes, this kind of proxy information about somebody's health is inferred information which comes within the definition of personal information and even more importantly within the definition of that subset of sensitive information which requires higher obligations for its treatment. And so that would then not be being leaked out to various other organisations because you would need that explicit consent. And and coming to that that second part of your question about, you know, how, how consent would be defined differently, we currently have consent including implied consent under the legislation which allows organisations to be saying it's somewhere in that privacy policy that's, you know, 10,000 words long, you find it, we take you to have consented because it was in there to a very different interface with consumers. So one of the apps that I had a look at is, is based in Norway. And it's interesting because it looked quite different in its interface to a lot of the others that as soon as you opened it, you were getting these um, short summary points of 
what they want to use your information for with unticked boxes so that for the ones that are not necessary to provide you with that fertility app service, you would actually have to tick the box to say, I want you to use this for research purposes. I want you to use it to share with other marketing companies for personalized advertising. And if you didn't take any action, (laughs) yeah, well, (laughs) I think that's the really interesting thing that we see advertising technology companies arguing about at the moment is that they want to say two things. One, One is they say people love personalized advertising and we're just giving them what they want, but don't make us have an opt-in system for it because nobody will opt-in so make up your mind (laughs) do they love it or not but I I think we'd see a lot of people not ticking the box especially with this kind of sensitive information that goes to people's physical health things that they don't want to share with others but also in a lot of cases their mental health because these these apps collect masses of information about people's moods and emotions and also down to diagnosed mental health problems yeah and as jennifer's pointed out in the chat there are actually a whole plethora of mental health apps that are probably gonna look pretty similar under the bonnet yeah for sure for sure and have similar problems exactly to those that we're talking about here Mm. Yeah, one, I mean, thinking about it changes, though, also if the Privacy Act was reformed in the way that's kind of currently proposed by the Attorney General's Department, I do wonder about enforcement because I think there's a real role to play in enforcement in making clear that this kind of thing occurs. And the currently, you know, if you've got a complaint under the Privacy Act, the only person you can complain to is the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner. And I feel like there's a lot of things that unfortunately the commissioner is not really able to deal with because it's a regulator it's got limited resources so there's real utility in allowing people to make complaints one of the things that you can make a complaint about then can do is seek compensation for among other things hurt feelings like it's quite a low bar but I also think with apps like this it feels like a violation to be honest even if I mean, does that constitute hurt feelings if it feels like a violation for the for companies to be trading your personal information in this way? And you know, in places like California, you'd get a standard fine associated with a breach. And in circumstances like this, I can see there being utility for a fine, so that you don't have to go through the process of demonstrating what constitutes hurt feelings or whatever it may be. And, of course, there'll be, there may be people who have experienced... But wouldn't that be if someone's done something wrong? Like, it seems like what the apps are doing are exactly what they've been designed to do. It's not like there's any bug here or any wrongdoing. They are basically, they're creating products that deliver some form of consumer benefit in return for really rich data. I wouldn't say that's the bargain, Peter, because they're, they're charging a fee for providing the app, providing the service, and ostensibly that that's what they're giving to consumers. They're saying, pay us this amount of money, we'll give you this service. And at the same time, in, in many of those cases, actually headlining with we never sell your data so I don't think that consumers Mm. are having that expectation that I'm handing over my health data for you to use for other purposes in exchange for getting the service I do think they're doing the wrong pretense there yeah yeah 
Anyway, I'll let you get back to your case, your class action you're preparing, Lizzie. Go. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like what happens then if they say, oh, we don't think it was possible to infer information from this. You know, we've labelled this data set in a way and then somebody did infer something from it. If the reforms came in that required a fair and reasonable approach to using personal information, but also that there is terms in the process, it's not clear whether they complied or it didn't, it's a line ball. You know, I can see companies trying to continue carrying on with a business model like this and, and trying to shoehorn it into the even reformed privacy obligations and then being found to be in breach. I, you know, in my mind, requiring that there just be harm suffered to an individual kind of misses what goes on here, which is there's a kind of shadow version of yourself that exists online that then is being bought and sold all the time as part of curated audiences, your membership of that, allowing, you know, ad tech companies to learn more and more about um, what kinds of marketing you might be open to, but then also delivering that to you. That's, the kind of harm it's not you as an individual that may have suffered it even if you know some some have uh but there's a bigger question around whether that kind of violation or misuse of your information would be compensated yeah i mean that's that's what i think about when i think about bringing a class action against these guys yeah i think uh, we definitely need new ways of conceiving of harm and damage that our federal court probably hasn't looked into i mean it has in various contexts looked into how do we treat injured feelings and what? Do, how do we compensate injured feelings? But looking at privacy damages more broadly, because we haven't had this kind of enforcement and redress available, that's law that's yet to develop. And perhaps the federal court would regard that with scepticism when it comes to, you know, just the extent of that kind of harm that goes to somebody's dignity and autonomy. And there would be a a lot of argument to to make there about about how we compensate that. Right. Um, Look, we're almost at the hour. Catherine, thanks for um, your contribution today and Lizzie as well. Um, There's nothing like getting two lawyers in with me to make People work out who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't. Catherine and Lizzie are both with me part of a loose privacy roundtable that are working really hard to help land these laws and we'll be hopefully getting busy over the next few months on that. Um, Lizzie, is there anything else people need to know about re-digital rights watch over the next couple of weeks? No, just that uh, we should all be keeping an eye on where that privacy reform is going and we're keen to hear from the Attorney Mm -hmm. General about whether he's going to proceed. Spoiler alert, it looks like there's some powerful opponents coming out of the shadows at the moment, but there might be more on that over the next few weeks. You've been listening to Burning Platforms. It was recorded live in a virtual town hall on April 21. If you want to attend one of our discussions, you can register at www.centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced by Jennifer Macy on Gadigal Land. Speak again in a fortnight.